Well, I'm ready to launch into a new series, and I hope that you're uh, ready to launch into it with me. It's a brave series, and um, it's all about taking a step uh, off whatever you feel secure in in order to follow Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what that means with me for just a moment. The Lord always calls us to leave something in order to follow Him, and uh, that's what we have unfolding in our Jesus series. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, whether it's uh, iPad, iPhone, whatever it might be, open them up. Open them up and turn to Luke chapter 6, if you would. Open them up and turn to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 are our brave series because in those three chapters, Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him and the courage it takes, the bravery it takes, the faith, and the willingness to believe him. I got to tell you today, if you want to follow Christ and you want to see him work in supernatural, powerful ways, it takes courage to step out in faith, it really does. It takes courage to trust him for the first time in your life for your salvation. But think about this with me. If you're willing to trust Jesus Christ with your life for salvation, for eternal life forever and ever, if you're willing to trust him for what's gonna happen after death, why would you not want to summon the courage and the bravery to trust him for here and now, right? If I could trust him for eternity, can I not trust him for tomorrow? If I can trust him to take care of me for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to give me a glorified body, to give me insight and wisdom and knowledge beyond what I can have on planet Earth, can I not trust him to get me through the next 24 hours? And what does it take to do that? That's what chapter six, seven, and eight have to do with. Now, when we were thinking about uh, what we would call this, we wanted it to be a one word uh, description of this season in the life of following Jesus. The Jesus series is the entire book of Luke. But when we talked about the one word, the word was faith, but but faith was kind of a generic term. We all think different things about the word faith. But when we all came to agreement of what it takes to have faith, what it takes to believe, it was the word brave. And when it came to an image that helped us understand that, it was the picture of someone jumping out of a perfectly healthy airplane to plummet to the earth and all that free fall before you actually get to planet Earth. The, the, the fear that you have to overcome, the willingness to leave behind something that you trust in, an airplane, in order to leap because someone says to leap. That's what the word brave exemplifies. This last week, I, I was signed up to go to a place called I Fly. How many of you saw that video? I'm telling you, it's crazy, it's crazy. <laughs> People are calling me and saying, I've never laughed so hard in my life. You're laughing at my misfortune is what you're doing. You're laughing at the fact that I flipped upside down on that thing and went plummeting to the earth. How many people plummet to the earth in something that's supposed to push you up high, right? I mean, that's me. And the bravery was really the heart of that young girl that probably couldn't weigh as much as my right leg who was trying to steer me around in that thing. But here's what it did. It gave me a sense. It gave me a sense of what it means to step out and do something you've never done before. It makes me want to jump out of a real airplane. We'll see through this series whether I ever actually get to that or not. But what does it take to leave security behind to follow Christ? That's the question. That's the point. Let's stand together as we read Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Standing in honor of reading God's Word is a thing that we do because it is God's Word. It's unlike any other book in the Bible. It's unlike uh, any other book on earth, rather. The Bible is God's Word, and it has power in every single word. Here's Jesus in the context of change, in the context of bringing new to old, 
The context is wineskins in chapter five. He says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because if you do that, the, new, the old wineskins will burst because of the combustion of the fermenting of that new wine. And so in the same way, the gospel has come. Jesus himself has come. And he said to the religious leaders of that day, you've got to make allowances for the power of Christ in your midst. I say the same thing to us today. In this context, we've got to be willing to account for the fact that he is calling us to new things in our lives. So Luke chapter six, beginning in verse one. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were picking up the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. Obviously they're hungry on their journey. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? See, they're breaking the ceremonial law that had become defined in the thousands of years after God gave the original law. Verse three, and Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. In the book of Matthew, he gives another phrase. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not about just keeping the laws. It's about understanding the heart behind that. Verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Now imagine that with me for just a moment. Probably from birth, this man cannot use his right hand. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they may find a reason to accuse him. This is what their focus is. But he knew what they were thinking. Now that's a scary thought. Let me just pause for a moment and say, when you read the word of God, there are those moments that scare you. Here's one of those moments that scare me. He knows everything I'm thinking. Does that make you afraid? It ought to make you afraid. It ought to make you thinking in a healthy way, a reverence and awe to the God who knows everything we're thinking. Here's what he says. The scripture says, he knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or destroy it? After looking around them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Father, today in Jesus' name, give us insight and wisdom to this text in this season in the life of Jesus on earth so that we might allow Jesus to rule and reign in us. I ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. I want you to configure your mind, your mind the next few moments. I want you to kind of get it in your mind where we're going with this and where Jesus is going with this. Jesus is moving from what you see about God and what you see about religion to what he wants us to see about himself and about how we worship. He's moving from head to heart. He's moving from outward obedience of the law or even the ceremonial aspects of the law to how the heart responds to God. That's where he's moving. He says this in the new wineskins talk. He says it again here. And in the next chapter, we're gonna see Jesus unfold the Sermon on the Mount where he often says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You remember where he says, you've heard it said, if you murder, then you've broken the law. But I say to you, if you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them. 
You've heard it said, if a person commits adultery, they've broken the law. But I'm saying to you, if you even look upon someone with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. It's not about the outward observance of the law or ceremonial law, but it's about your heart. And in Jesus' teaching, he is disturbing the religious leaders of the day. Now, over the years, the religion of the day, Judaism, had come to be represented by the ability to live out the do's and don'ts, to check the list of spirituality. And here's what happens when we began to live out outwardly and only outwardly religion. We began to judge other people who don't live it the way we do. We began to look down on people who don't keep the same law in the same way, in the same manner that we do. And it becomes not about God, it becomes about us. It becomes about our self-righteousness. And Jesus is addressing and taking this apart and saying to them, there's some things you have to be courageous enough and brave enough to change if you follow me. What does it take to be brave enough to follow Jesus? That's what we're asking today and answering. What does it take to be brave enough to follow Jesus. You need to write this down at the top of your list today because I'm asking you the same question. You're not a Pharisee, hopefully, and you're not a Sadducee, and you're not one of those in that day and time, but what Jesus says is eternal. What does it take to be brave enough to follow him? Three things in this text tells us what it takes to be brave enough. First of all, we have to be brave enough to leave. Brave enough to leave, to leave our security, to leave the things we're comfortable with, to leave our religion, to leave everything that says to us we're right with God or we're self-righteous. We have to leave in order to follow him. Now, the reason I believe that this is what the text says is because as we walk through the first four or five verses, everything that they're saying is what God originally said in abbreviated form, and they have built upon that law and they've made it fit what they want it to fit. In other words, the law was given by God, but the rabbinical tradition added to those commandments that God gave us until there were 639 rabbinical laws in total attached to the 10 commandments God gave us. Now you think about that with me for a moment. What does it take to even know 639 rabbinical laws, much less keep them? I think about the fact that if you could keep the majority of them, how righteous you must feel that you are and how unrighteous everyone else is. You don't even know these details of the law. How can you keep it? It becomes about knowledge. It becomes about being disciplined enough to just do the right thing. All those things that were not the priority when God gave the law. So it's important for us to know, for us to really be right with Christ. Christ is calling us to leave what we're accustomed to as what they were accustomed to. Let me just say this today. When Jesus asks people to follow him, he always asks them to leave something. You say, well, I'm really glad I'm not a Pharisee today. I'm really glad that I'm not in that tradition. I'm glad I'm not uh, legalistic. I'm glad I'm not living by a list of do's and don'ts and a checklist. And, and I'm glad I'm not being judged by somebody else and I'm not judging somebody else because I'm not that religious. But today, remember, Jesus asked everybody to leave something. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, he asked them to leave their legalism. But the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, he asked him to leave his riches in order to follow him. And the woman caught in adultery, he asked her to get up and sin no more, leave the lifestyle of adultery. And Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, was a religious leader himself. He said, basically, you've got to be born again. Everything you've built is not right. And you've got to change from the inside out. Every person Jesus encountered, he asked them to leave something that was holding them back 
from following Christ. We just read about Matthew, the tax collector in chapter five. Here's a man that was living it up, who had an incredible income stream from all the taxes he was gathering. And yet Jesus says, you've got to leave that all in order to follow me. The disciples were by and large, very simple guys. Peter, James, and John fishermen mending their nets when Jesus said, you need to leave that in order to follow me. You gotta be brave enough to leave what's your security. Brave enough to leave what makes you feel spiritual. Brave enough to leave what's normal for you in order for you to follow the new voice of the Messiah himself. And what kept them back was their own security. Instead of being secure enough in him, it's very much like being on the side of an airplane. A door opens up and and the jump master says to you, it's time to jump. And the thing you're secure about is that you're in an airplane that takes off on a predictable schedule, that's gonna land in a predictable schedule, and you gotta leave all that to fly out into the air and to go down all the way, 14,000 feet down, hoping the parachute will open up just because the jump master says, come, follow me, and it'll be fine. There's a moment of holding your breath, a moment of deliberation. Can I leave that which is secure in order to follow this one and do I trust him? I want you to know today, Jesus Christ came to reveal God, to die on the cross to pay for our sin, to rise again to overcome sin and death. And today, he stares us in the face and says, will you leave? Will you leave whatever's secure in order to follow me? We've gotta be brave enough to make that decision. We've gotta be brave enough to say, yes, I will obey you. Now that's the, that's the 30,000 feet view. That's the, that's the top view of what's going on. But what's going on when it gets down to the minute detail of the statement is about the Sabbath. Because they were accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And the Sabbath law is obviously a great law. You know what the Sabbath law is? That we are to work six days and then on the seventh day we're to rest. Remember the Sabbath day God said in the Old Testament to keep it holy. And it means we're supposed to rest. That cycle God gave us is a great phenomenal cycle where we work six and we rest one. There's nothing wrong with the Sabbath law. That's what God gave us. But the Pharisees had built upon that to the point of ridiculousness. And what I want you to see today is God's law is always good for us. In fact, here's a statement I want you to write down. His laws are for us, not just for us to keep. They're for us. They're for our good. They're for our health. They're for us to be all that we're to be. They're to optimize our lives. Let me just tell you today that if you learn to rest the way God's law says that we are to learn to rest, you're better able to have a great marriage. A rested person works better, worships better, prays better, reads God's word and hears God's will better. A rested person, if they look at what God was saying when he says rest, is a person that is able to live out the life God's called them to live out in a good way. And instinctively, we know this. We don't know how to put on the brakes, but we know that that's good for us. Well, let me just say, God's law is such that we are to find a place and a time during the week to rest. The law is not just for us to gain our righteousness by keeping it. In fact, it's not there at all for that. Our only righteousness is in Christ, but it's there for our good because we need it. How many of you like to take naps on Sunday afternoon? Would you raise your hand if you like to take naps? Boy, if this was a business meeting, that would be unanimous. 
A number of years ago, I was preaching in a church. My first pastorate in Oklahoma, I had probably only been pastoring for about three years. And um, I was preaching through the Ten Commandments. And I got to this commandment, and I, I, I didn't plan to say this, but I did say it. I said, you know, we had taken naps on Sunday afternoon. And I have to tell you that because of God's law, that is officially an anointed nap. <laughs> and people laughed, and they started talking about that. Anointed nap. I'm going to go home and take an anointed nap. And uh, don't give me problems. Don't judge me for my anointed nap, right? And there's something powerful about sleeping on Sunday afternoon. How many of you hear that phrase and it just resonates in your spirit, anointed nap? Would you raise your hand if you're okay? All right. If practice that, you'll be amazed. So about 15 years later, I was pastoring in Tennessee at the time, and I come back by invitation to preach at that church I'd started pastoring in. And so I come back, and, and during one of the nights where we're meeting together, I, I just polled them. I said, how many of you remember one message I preached, just one message that stood out in their mind that I preached when I was here for seven years. And I was hoping, of course, everybody would remember something, but, but you know, not everybody raised their hand, but, but the ones that raised their hands, I said, what message do you remember? And they all said, without, without exception, without hesitation, the anointed nap. And I think, I've pastored here for seven years and that's the only thing you took away from, from my seven years, that anointed nap. But it's a, if it's all you get, if it's the only thing you remember, rest. God's laws are for us. God's laws are good. God's laws are not so that we can build a standard of righteousness and judge others who don't take anointed naps. You see how crazy that is? But that's what the Pharisees had done. And when Jesus broke something that they thought was a God-made law, they were ready to judge him. Eventually, they wanted to put him to death and they were conspiring to do so. Listen, it's ultimately about you getting past what you're comfortable with and what you're secure in and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's being able to come to the place where you can say, I know you're the lawgiver and judge. I know what you say will be true, be consistent to scripture. It'll be consistent to everything you've given us. I can trust you to leave whatever brings me security in order to follow you. Today, you're going to have to make that choice. There's a second thing the text points out as well, and that is to be brave enough to listen. Here they have the Messiah in front of them, and they refuse to hear him. They refuse to listen. They refuse to acknowledge who he was. If you look in chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Don't overlook the first part of that line to get to the more sensational moment in the text. Look at the importance of what he's doing. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. The ministry of Jesus Christ was one of ongoing teaching to the people that were familiar with the word, as well as teaching and the miraculous with those who weren't. So here he's coming, spending time with people, helping them understand what God's purpose is in the law and in the Old Testament, and they are failing to hear and see who he was. In fact, the people who were most off and most blind were those religious people. Now, this to me is amazing. That someone that can know the Old Testament law and then that can know the prophecies pointing to the Messiah, when the Messiah comes and stands in their midst, they don't recognize who he is. How does that happen? And maybe more importantly today, is it still happening? And I'm going to tell you the answer is yes. As human beings, we tend to miss the point of what God is often doing. 
in our lives, in the Word, in the kingdom. We sometimes just miss the point. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5 for a moment. In John 5, verse 39, a scenario, a very similar scenario is unfolding. And the Pharisees and Jesus are having a conversation. And they're touting their knowledge of the law, the Old Testament, and the prophets. And you'll find this happening several times in the Gospels. And Jesus makes a statement to them that's a piercing statement that should be all of us should be look at and say, what's, what's he saying to me? Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that speak about me, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You're looking in the right book. You're looking at the right words. You're listening to the right prophets. You're just not letting them speak to you. You're not listening. And you're not seeing the Messiah, God the Son, standing in your midst. This is one of the most amazing mysteries of all time that the Jews could be calling for, praying for, yearning for a Messiah. And God sends the Messiah and they miss him completely. And here's the reason why. You're searching the scripture, but you're looking for all the wrong things. It is these that speak of me. So what were they looking for? Well, like us today, they're looking for everything except the point often of what the scripture says. Sometimes we do the very same thing. They were listening to what they wanted to hear. They were listening for ways to build their own sense of self-righteousness. Oh, I can do that, or I've done that, or my parents have that kind of heritage, so we're good. They were listening to what they wanted to hear. They were also listening to their favorite rabbi. In that day and time, the rabbinical tradition had several avenues and some rabbis took this approach, some rabbis took another approach. And so these people were divided up because of their humanity and because of their depravity into several streams of rabbinical teaching. Does that sound any different than we are today? They were divided by which rabbi said what? They were also listening to their entrenched ideas. Well, it's my perspective that God means that. Or it's my perspective that God means this. So they were listening for their ideas. They were validating what they wanted to validate. They were also listening to their fears. But if he's the Messiah, that means I've got to change something. If this man is who it's all about, then I've got to, I've got to leave all these things that bring me security. Sometimes when you read the Word of God, do you read with fear? Do you lead with entrenched ideas? Do you read with the perspective of what one of your favorite teachers says instead of what God is really saying through that? I'm convinced that sometimes we read the Bible with great fear and we miss what God is saying. He couldn't possibly want me to be brave enough to do that. My wife and I were traveling this weekend in the car and we were talking about this very thing that God does calling us to be brave in order to follow him. And she reminded me when my, my oldest daughter was getting swimming lessons when she was four years old. And I wasn't there because I was working, but Kim was taking Carrie, our oldest daughter, to get those lessons. And she was taking lessons from a neat guy who was actually a, a pastor. He was a young man. He was a great swimmer, lifeguard, uh, extraordinaire, friendly, smiling all the time. He was an encourager. And we were going to let Carrie learn to swim for her own good, for her own survival. And part of that involved going underwater. 
And so she was a little concerned about that. Anybody that's had kids that taught them to swim underwater knows that fear. And so the guy's name was actually Kim, Kim Brooks. And uh, Kim had Terry, by the way, and said, okay, we've gone through the elementary stuff. Now we're going to go into water. And her eyes got big. You're going to have to hold your breath just for a short period of time, but you can trust me. And I'm going to hold you. And we're going to go under. And then we're going to come back up. And you're going to get to breathe again. But hold your breath for just a few moments. And she started getting panicky. So he said, I'm going to count to three. We're going to go under. He said, one. And Carrie, four years old, screamed out to her mom, this man hates me. (laughs) Two, he's going to kill me. Three, and they go under. And she's probably still yelling underwater. (laughs) And she comes up. And uh, everything's fine. She survives. And Kim is laughing so hard she can't stand up. She's weeping. She's laughing so hard. That the panic that comes across our little daughter for something as simple as being asked to be brave enough to trust a guy to take her underwater and to bring her back up again. And yet, sometimes as adults today, when Christ speaks to us about laying aside something in our life that's a habitual sin, something that is holding us back to follow him, we scream in the same way. He's trying to hurt me. He's trying to destroy my life. He's putting me in harm's way. See, we have to be brave enough to leave and we have to be brave enough to listen. And I'm telling you today, if you won't listen to Christ enough to hear him, you won't listen to him enough to leave, whatever it is. Whatever sin, whatever habit, whatever problem holds you back, whatever judgmental attitude it is, whatever it is that keeps you from following Christ, then you need to be brave enough to hear him. Listen to him. And that gives you enough courage to leave that sin, that that thing that holds you back behind. There's a third thing I want you to see here, and that is we must be brave enough to love, to love. And by the way, one thing I don't want to get past before sharing, this is is really amazing. That today, those people in that day and time had a, a Messiah who made a promise. And they had not yet seen him on the cross. They had not yet seen him die and be buried in a tomb and rise again the third day. So they didn't have that advantage. We do today. So they had a promised Messiah in front of them. We have a promised Messiah who fulfilled his promise to die and rise again from the dead the third day. So we've got a resurrected Lord now. All right. And when he says to us, follow, we ought to be able to follow him through whatever. I mean, he's led us through death and beyond. He made the promise to come back from the dead and he's done all that. So that ought to give us amazing confidence and that's what gave those New Testament believers confidence to listen and follow. After last week's message, I I saw a tweet from one of our church members. So good. I want to put it on the screen today because it really has to do with Easter and the resurrection and the, the Christian life today. Barry McCarty said this. He said the earliest Christians believed in the resurrection not because they couldn't find a dead body, but because they did find a living Christ. We're not all about just an empty tomb. We're all about the one who rose from that tomb and from the dead. We're all about knowing that he's alive today. It's not a dead man that speaks to you from the scriptures. It's the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ. And if Lord is what you call him, then yes, it's what you say. We've got to learn to listen. And then we've got to learn to love. Brave enough to love. I don't have to spend a lot of time telling you today that the Pharisees 
were not loving people. They were all about saving their own hide, building their own reputation. In fact, Jesus' inflammatory parable, to them inflammatory, of the Good Samaritan points it out so clearly. It wasn't the teacher who stopped for the hurting man. It wasn't the Pharisee or the scribe that stopped for the hurting man. It was the Samaritan that stopped for the hurting man. It was the Samaritan that showed love. And when the lawyers and the Pharisees tried to entrap Jesus, they they tried to entrap him by asking him what the greatest commandment was. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is likened to it. This is what they didn't expect. The second is likened to it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And on this depend the whole law and prophets. In other words, everything that you know about God is dependent upon this huge relational statement. First God, then others, and it's love. We've got to learn to be brave enough to love. Do you remember, and I got to set this up right for us to see it. Do you remember in chapter five, verse 19, when Jesus is teaching in the house after healing Peter's mother-in-law and uh, all these envoys, these, this convoy of people from the different cities and villages that are scribes and Pharisees are coming to judge Jesus because of his teaching and to listen to him. And they fill the house up. And four men come with their paralyzed friend trying to get in the house and they can't get in the house. Chapter five, verse 19 uh, tells us that they, they can't get in the house so they have to come to the top of the roof and open it up to get in. And what we see a picture of is a lot of religious people who are not showing compassion for those that are hurting and really need to get to Jesus. They just want to, to spend some time picking his brain, trying to find out if it adds up mentally to them and, and, and understanding of what the scripture says. They cared about their laws, their religion, but not about people. They maybe weren't shoving the man out, but they certainly were unconcerned and uncaring. And you see the same Pharisees when the woman was caught in adultery, ready to stone her, not looking for real justice, not looking with any mercy towards her. It was Jesus that had compassion on her. So we know that these religious people had a lack of love and eventually they demonstrated it in how they treated Jesus. But in this passage in verses 10 and 11, the Bible says that Jesus called this man forward. He said, I ask you, is it lawful in verse nine to do good or do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or destroy it? And the religious leaders answered him, not a word. They have nothing to say about doing good for anyone on the Sabbath. Here's a man that's probably had a withered hand since birth, severely handicapped in a day and age which you needed your hands to do, to do what was required to make a living, had no help. The Bible says after looking around them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. I want to get this scene right. After looking at them all, looking at every one of these scribes and every one of these Pharisees, every one of these individuals that wanted to judge Jesus for breaking their ceremonial law on the Sabbath. And he's making a scene of this thing. He's drawing this out. He's making sure that he has eye contact with every single one of them because what he's about to do is break their ceremonial law in order to show love to a man with a withered hand. And when he gets that attention, he calls the man up. Stretch forth your hand. The man stretched forth his hand, stretches it forth. And he's healed. Miracle of miracles, he's healed. And there's no celebration. There's no clapping. There's nobody excited except the man with a withered hand who no longer has a withered hand. And instead, they began to conspire. What are we going to do with him? He's breaking our laws. The lack 
of love. It's glaringly present. Let me just say this to you. You can be very, very, very religious and meaner than a junkyard dog. But you cannot be a true follower of Jesus and be meaner than a junkyard dog. You cannot follow Christ and have no compassion for the hurting. You can't follow Christ and have no compassion for those that are far from God. You can't follow Christ and and not have compassion on those who are oppressed and hurting and shut out. He calls us to love. He calls us to love. I'm sure the man whose hand was healed was thinking, you're angry? For the first time in my life, I'm whole, and you're angry and you're conspiring on how to deal with this man who is God in the flesh? Let me just make this statement as plainly as I can. God wants people whole. Jesus wants people whole. And he wants to use you to help them become whole. But more than that, he wants them loved. He wants them to love. Let me say this today. The church of Jesus Christ does not need to be like these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these legalists. Us, the church, we need to be brave enough to leave. To leave those things that hold us back from following Jesus completely. We need to be brave enough to listen. I hope that today and this week you open your Bible up and you're not reading for history. You're not reading for detail. You're not reading to verify something you heard somebody else say. You're not reading even for the Greek sense of the word. Here's what I'm hoping you're reading for. I'm hoping you're reading to hear the love letter of the Messiah God who came, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you.